Okay. Um, I am also means inappropriate missiology. My paper is going to deal simply with the methodology uh, and two premises that you find uh, in a paper that was presented by John and Anna Travis, um, Jay Muller. What are, he has other synonyms, or not synonyms. Um, ac what is, what's the word I'm looking for? Covert names. Pseudonyms, thank you. I couldn't even think of the word. Um, so here are the first two premises. Um, I'll talk about each one as much in depth as possible. Um, this come, uh, Jesus did not come to begin a new religion, but to establish the kingdom of God. Therefore, those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus do not need to change religions. And by the way, this is coming from, I'll give you the source, um, Appropriate Approaches in Muslim Contexts, which is in Chuck Craft's Appropriate Christianity. Okay, so that's the first premise. Where'd it go? It's not there. Voila. And here's the second one. There are some Islamic practices and beliefs that align with Scripture. Now, it would be great to deal with all ten, but uh, obviously there's no time. So I'm going to deal just with these two. First, the first premise. Jesus did not come to begin a new religion, but establish the kingdom of God. Therefore, those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus do not need to change religions. I completely agree that Jesus did not come to establish a new religion. I think there's very few people in here who would argue with that, I hope. <clears throat> but he did come as a Jew and one who preached biblical Judaism. Not rabbinical Judaism, but biblical Judaism. So I'm gonna, I'm, I am going to deal with uh, this a little bit later, but for right now, I think there are three areas of discussion. First, what does it mean that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God? I'm not going to try to define the kingdom so much. I just want to know, I want to explore this idea that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. Secondly, what does the premise not mention that Jesus did say? That's the second area of discussion on this first premise. And then the third area is what is conversion? Or do we even need to worry about it? So, let's go back. What does it mean that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God? Each of the Gospels mentions Jesus' consistent preaching and his message. The kingdom of God is at hand, etc., etc. The irony is that the, his view of the kingdom is not that which was held by the typical first century Jew. Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly reign, but a new covenant between Father and His people. His kingdom is one of relationship, of renewed hearts, of worship in spirit and in truth. The kingdom of God was indeed the focus of Jesus' preaching. But what are we to think of the kingdom vis-a-vis -vis religion? This sort of, I think, gets at the heart of this question. You know, Jesus spoke harshly to the religious people of His day the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even the Zealots, even though one of his own disciples was a Zealot. We're familiar with his tongue-lashing of the Pharisees uh, in Matthew 23 and his cleansings of the temple. And while these events are ostensibly anti-religion, now I'm being very careful with my, my language here, they are ostensibly anti-religion, Jesus' behavior shows that he has a love for his own religion for the Jewish religion, so much so that he critically corrects it where it's wrong. If he didn't love his religion, he would have let it go. Well, maybe we'll argue, well, there's a difference between the people and the religion itself, but it's pretty hard to separate the two because you don't have a religion without people. 
True, Jesus did not come to establish a new religion, but neither did he come to abolish it, Matthew 5, 17. He came with zeal for the house of God, for the temple, a religious artifact. He knew and he loved the scriptures, an essential component of Jewish religion, a religious artifact, scriptures. He encouraged the proper practice of certain religious rites and rituals, the presenting of offerings, keeping one's righteous deeds private, he talked about prayer and fasting, all of these religious phenomena. Each of these outward forms or manifestations of religion held great meaning to Jesus, otherwise he would not have spoken about them. So again, I agree. Jesus did not come to establish a new religion, but he corrected the established religion. He was not anti-religion, rather he was against the abuse of religious forms evidenced by his correction of the various rituals and teachings that Certain Jews, certain ill-motivated Jews had um, perverted. Maybe my language is too strong there. The second um, area under this premise, this premise doesn't speak to something it should have said that Jesus did say. Am I on the right slide? Let's go here. Yes, we. Go. Okay. I didn't realize I was behind. Yell at me if my slides are behind, okay? Just don't throw things. <clears throat> Not only did Jesus preach the kingdom, but additionally he said, what? I will build my church. Now this was mentioned the other day, but you don't see this mentioned in this premise. In light of this, we must not confuse the kingdom with the church, obviously. The church is the servant of the kingdom. The church is the community of the kingdom. And here's a quote from Stutz and Schenk. Uh, Stutzman and Schenk, the kingdom of God becomes visible in any community whenever a cluster of people gather in Jesus' name. So there's an organic link between the kingdom and the church that cannot be separated. It's organic. At least that's what I see in Scripture. On the one hand, overemphasis on the kingdom um, it, uh, it, it can lead to a neglect of the church, and that we don't want to do that. And on the other hand, an, uh, an overemphasis on the church can give us a distorted view of the kingdom. So what's needed is a balanced approach to handle the church in the kingdom. Again, I don't have the time uh, to, to deal with that. That's a whole other topic. But it does appear to me that some proponents of the I am place the kingdom opposite or against the church. They, they make them stand against each other. The first premise associates the church and Christianity with religion, which is a four-letter word for a lot of people, rather than the kingdom. Jesus, pro-IMers argue, was concerned with the kingdom as opposed to religion. This premise diminishes the importance of the church. It makes the church an obstacle to the work of God rather than a means for its expansion. Now, let me give you a real quick illustration. Not long ago, we had a speaker come to Biola, uh, whose name you would know if I said it. So I won't say his name. It's Carl Medeiros. He came and he spoke, and, and he was telling us lots of great stories. He's a great guy. I really liked his stories. They were great. And the students were enthralled by what he was talking about. And he was, he was relating stories about how, when asked about, are you a Christian? He said, no, I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, we've heard that before. Once at Al-Azhar, he was asked to explain something about Christianity, and he said, I don't know anything about Christianity, but let me tell you about Jesus. 
Now, stop and think about what he just did. Now, those are almost verbatim quotes. Now I'm going to imply something that he may not have meant, but what I think is what happened. He bashed the church. He, he lowered, in my opinion, the, the, the value of Christ's body by saying that. And not to put too hard of a lie on it, isn't it just a little bit almost like takia when you say things like that? Is my... No, there it is. It's like a switch and bait. He knows something about Christ. He knows something about Christianity. He knows a lot about the church. But he's not willing to talk about it. So my question is this. Why is it that we allow Muslims to define our terms for us? Because what's a Christian to a Muslim? We always say, oh, it's a pork-eating, bacon-eating, uh, wife-swapping guy who goes to church on Sunday. That is a lie. But we allow Muslims to think it if we don't correct it. So are you a Christian? Oh, no, I'm a follower of Christ. Well, maybe you don't say, no, I'm not a Christian, but I am a follower of Jesus submitted to Allah. But by not standing up for the term and refilling it with what it really means, Christian means follower of Jesus. Why are we ashamed of that? And so, oh, I'm not going to preach it, but I don't preach. Yeah, that's been done several times today. I want to give a paper. <laughs> All right, so uh, let me move off that. Let me go to conversion. What are the biblical in injunctions for new believers? Do they come away from their old religion or do they stay in it? Many pro-IMers, again, I, notice I'm using some and many, but never all. Okay, I'm not trying to, to frame I am as this monolithic, every one size fits all. It's not the case. And just a word of encouragement, we here need to remember that. And as I've said in several places, as, as the idea of I am is nuanced, so our response needs to be nuanced and fair and honest and complete. Okay, so... Um, Many pro-IMers argue that there's no need to leave one religion for another since Jesus never called his followers to join a religion. It's not necessary for a Muslim who wishes to follow Jesus to become a Christian or to leave Islam. Again, these are some suppositions that we need to discuss inside of this statement. By the way, that's all the, I just, what I gave you was the kingdom circles for the most part. There's no reason to, to come into Christianity to come into the kingdom. That's not necessary. So let me talk about what I think is behind this statement, some premises behind this statement. Oh, I'm a little bit too far. Or No, that's where I was going to just say, Jesus comes back for his bride, not the luggage. Okay, sorry. So I'm behind on my slides again. Because the bride of Christ is the church, right? He's not coming back for her luggage. Okay, so we have luggage, we have baggage, we realize that, we're all screwed up, pardon my French, but he's coming back for us anyway. All right, so back to my original thought. The premise supposes, here's my first one, this premise supposes that all religions are the same. Most pro-IMers argue it's foolish to swap one religion for another. Religion is a man-made contraption, something that Jesus eschewed. Becoming a follower of Jesus is a matter of heart allegiance, not joining a local congregation. I mean, after all, who believes that sitting under an apple tree makes you Sir Isaac Newton, right? Nobody. 
Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian. We all agree to that. But here's my question. Are all religions the same? Well, we've talked about that plenty here, and that was actually the topic of my last paper last year. But Jesus did speak to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, an adherent of another religion. And when he said to her in verse 22, salvation is from the Jews, notice salvation is from the Jews. Was he telling her that Judaism was no different than Samaritan religion? In fact, Jesus made a bold declaration about Judaism. It's the only religion in which one can find salvation. Are all religions the same? Well, okay, I need to be careful here. I don't believe that Jesus was calling the woman to Judaism. At least not first century Judaism. However, I am convinced that Jesus invited her to biblical Judaism. It's a Judaism in which true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's verse 23. Jesus neither denigrates her religion nor his own Yet he is helping her to understand that there is a true religion and that the practice of her religion falls short of what he offers. Jesus didn't have a pluralistic view of religions. He was quite exclusivistic in his understanding of his own religion. Jesus was an exclusivist, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Now, that's my opinion. It's not in Scripture, but it's my opinion. He inaugurated the kingdom of God through the practice of Judaism. The Judaism that was experienced by, I know this is anachronistic because Abraham wasn't a Jew, but by the Judaism of Abraham, if you will, who was reckoned for, uh, for being righteous by his faith. That's true Judaism. Genesis 15. It was the Judaism of Isaiah, the missionary religion with light for the nations, Isaiah 42.6. Jesus lived Jeremiah's Judaism. The missionary, or rather, the religion of a new heart and a covenant with the Father, Jeremiah 31, 31, and 33. It was the Judaism of Joel in which God himself called for a holy fast. By the way, fasting is a religious phenomenon or uh, a phenomenon or a rite or a ritual. And God himself calls for it. Not all religions are the same. There's a true religion, the religion of Jesus. And there are false religions. Those are the two categories. It's like Jew and Gentile. That's it. Most pro-IMers have the wrong understanding of religion. I humbly suggest that they don't have Jesus' understanding. Or at least they don't have my understanding of Jesus' understanding. Let me be fair. Second, this premise is based on an untenable... Now, I've got to be really careful here because I'm a missiologist. And I'm trained in anthropology, so I've got to be really careful not. The premise is based on an untenable reliance on social science rather than scripture. We can argue till the cows come home about whether or not Islam is a religion, a culture, or some combination. But it's an indisputable fact that the followers of Jesus are said to have their eyes opened from the effects of darkness when they put their trust in him. There's a whole bunch of scriptures for that. If Islam does not have Jesus the kingdom, the gospel, or the church, then it must have spiritual darkness as its primal substance, at its DNA, at its core. If it has none of the things that Jesus has, it cannot be the religion of Jesus. It cannot be his. He cannot be a part of it. Therefore, it's a system that must be turned from as part of one's turning to Christ. 
It's necessary to turn from one's previous position of darkness, unregeneration, and spiritual blindness to Christ, becoming incorporated into the body of Christ. Again, and I really appreciate those words. We are wrong when we separate salvation from incorporation into the body of Christ, both physical or visible and invisible. We make, we make a huge error, I believe, when we do that. Again, some proponents of I am believe I am, uh, Islam is a culture. That is a complete system, a way of life. This missiology assumes a Durkheimian, I love this word, Durkheimian understanding of religion. Is that up there? Yeah, okay. Gorilla glue. It, Durkheim had l- rules and laws that he created as he observed society. He's really a sociologist. But he created the idea that, uh, not created, he observed the idea that religion holds societies together. This is a Durkheimian view. Hence, Islamic society would fall apart without Islam because it is a culture uh, and a religion, but it's all of that combined. That's a Durkheimian view of Islam. I'm going to touch more on this later when I deal with the second premise, but I obviously disagree with Durkheim on this. And I would argue most IMers hold this view of Islam. So the second premise. There are Islamic practices and beliefs that align with Scripture. At first blush, this seems reasonable. Muslims pray, Christians pray, Muslims read their scriptures, we read our scriptures. They have a creed, we have a creed. But it's illogical, illogical to think that similarities means equality. First, do the beliefs and practices of Islam genuinely align with the Bible? Secondly, if they do align, what specifically are those practices? What are, I want to know what they are if they align up. So uh, the beliefs of Islam vis-a-vis Christianity, do, are they similar or different? So I'm going to give you some examples from Travis that they suggest are ways in which um, uh, things in Christianity and Islam line up. I think I have them. I don't. Sorry. I have them in the paper, but not on my slides. So let me just back up. They say this. This is a quote. They, meaning Muslims, recognize as Scripture the Torah, the Psalms, and the New Testament. Quote, they believe in the divine birth and ministry of Jesus. This is from the Travises. Quote, they acknowledge as prophets most of the major biblical figures. Quote, Jesus, the word of God, Kalimat Allah, the spirit of God, Ruh Allah, and the Messiah, Al-Masih. Okay, so let me back up. What, let's, real briefly, let's touch on each one of those. What's the Islamic view of the Bible? Four quotes. I'm not going to even read them. You look at them. But these are quotes from four well-known Muslim scholars, not always agreed with, of course, in Islam, but they present the orthodox view of Islam. Yusuf Ali, the correct translation of the Torah, is the law, but it's been lost. It's been corrupted. Okay, that's what he said. So here's the second one, Maududi. What does Maududi believe about scriptures? Does he consider Christian scriptures as um, valid for Muslims? Absolutely not. They're lost. Then there's uh, uh, Ibn Kathir. I don't know how they got a picture of Ibn Kathir since he's 15th century, but there he is. Um, I'll read his. <laughs> I wouldn't know, frankly. I wasn't around. He's quoting uh, what somebody else said, and so I'm going to try and give you the full quote. Here's, here's part of the quote. As for Allah's books, they are still preserved and cannot be changed. Now, and then he goes on to say, Ibn Abi Hatam recorded this statement. However, if Wab meant the books that are currently in the hands of the people of the book, 
then we should state that there is no doubt that they are altered, distorted, added to, and deleted from them. He goes on and, and, and this explains this fuller, but that is his view. The books of the Christian, the people of the book, have a book that's distorted and or lost. That's the orthodox view of Islam. Now, we can argue about what the Quran says about the Bible. I'm very familiar with those passages. And I like to use them with Muslims just to point them out. But in the end, orthodox Islam denies the viability and the authenticity of the scriptures as we know them. I believe that Travis's statement is misleading on this point about the scriptures. Second, the birth and ministry of Jesus are certainly mentioned in the Quran and the Hadith, but is it divine? Well, you know about the story. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he uh, doesn't have sex with her, but he does something that I found, again, Ibn Kathir makes this statement. I don't know if I have this on the slide. Maybe not. <clears throat> this is the passage. But what do the Travises mean by divine birth? Now, I know what I mean by divine birth. I think I know what they would mean if uh, understanding that they're Christians by divine birth. But what do they mean that Muslims mean a divine birth or the insider view of a divine birth, or at least at this segment of what insider movement is? So here's what Ibn Kathir says. And again, I think I may or may not have the quote. I'll, I'll, I don't think I do. Many scholars of the predecessors, the Salaf, have mentioned that at this point the angel blew into the opening of the garment that she was wearing, and then the breath descended until it entered into her vagina, and she conceived the child by the leave of Allah. Is that the Christian understanding of a divine birth? I doubt it. Oh, wait, it's not. Sorry, I don't doubt it. It's not. <laughs> So the angel Gabriel blew into a hole in Mary's robe and she was impregnated. I agree that the birth of Jesus in Islam can be viewed as divine, but it's a, certainly a qualified divine. It's not the Holy Spirit of God. It's Gabriel, a mere angel who breathes and she's pregnant. Apparently. But by the will of Allah. Third, does Islam acknowledge the biblical prophets? Again, the Travis has said this, that Islam acknowledges the biblical prophets. So again, I qualified yes, yes and no. We, we have a problem here with perspectives and definitions. The Quran speaks of 25 biblical prophets. Um, most of them are biblical prophets. Some are Arab prophets like Hud and Salih. Uh, but in fact, here's what's interesting to me. Not one of them in the Quran ever uses the name of the God for whom they are a prophet. Where in the Quran does Moses ever talk to Yahweh? Is Yahweh's name ever mentioned in connection with Noah or Jesus or anyone? No. Isn't it? It seems strange that these prophets didn't even know the name of the God that they were serving, the biblical prophets. So Islam acknowledges, there we go, Islam acknowledges that these prophets are from the Bible. I agree with that, but again, a qualified yes and no. The Quran presents cardboard, two-dimensional caricatures of the biblical personalities. Quote from Roberto Totoli, who speaks to this very issue when he says, the Quran does not contain a uh, unequivocal definition of the stories of the biblical prophets. Apart from its function, now here's the function of all the stories of the prophets in the Bible, to serve... Um, uh, a function for the mission of Muhammad 
The Quran does not consider these narrative parts as a precise genre that can be distinguished from the rest of the revelations. In other words, the sole purpose of the inclusion of the biblical prophets in the Quran is to point to Muhammad. That's all they do. They don't call Israel back in repentance, except maybe to, to chew out the Jews, you know, but they don't call them in repentance. They don't do the things that the biblical prophets do, except there's some kind of adumbration for Muhammad. Uh, foreshadowing. Yeah. Sorry, that's another missiological word. Hey, I paid a lot of money for my education. I get to use the big words. Okay. <laughs> All right, fourthly, what about Jesus' titles? They mentioned uh, Jesus in the Quran is uh, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Messiah. Real briefly, um, Jesus is the Word of God, Kalimat Allah. In Christianity, this refers to the second person of the Trinity. In Islam, it refers to a created being. I don't need to say any more. There's a difference. The Jesus is the Spirit of God. Please, where in the Bible does it say that? Jesus is the Spirit of God. I'm unaware of any place in Scripture that it says that. And yet, we sometimes go right along and say, yeah, well, that's, that's right, Jesus is the Spirit of God. Right, and we need to stop that. Yet in the Quran, the Spirit of God doesn't mean He's somehow divine. It means more that He is a creation from Him. Right, right. But which Lord is that? Is that Jesus or the Father or the Holy Spirit? Or, But, but I mean, specifically, it doesn't say Jesus is, yeah. Because that's what Muslims always say. Show me in the Quran where it's, or in the Bible where it says Jesus is God. So I'm going to say to a Muslim, show me in the Bible where it says Jesus is the Spirit of God. Okay, seems fair to me. Um, and then the, the, the third one, Jesus al-Masih, Isa al-Masih. Muslims don't even know what the word means. They don't, in fact, it's part of Jesus' name in the Quran. It's his name. It's not a title that's given to him that has the biblical connotations of someone anointed for a special purpose. That's not given in the Quran. So it has to be remembered that of the world's religions, only Islam, and I emphasize that really, only Islam is explicitly anti-Christian in its beliefs. The Jesus of the Quran is not the same Jesus Christians see in the Gospels. Yet, there, yeah, there are lots of similarities beyond the name, but surely there has to be a point at which we say similarities um, pale in the light of the differences. It seems that some proponents of the I am willingly overlook the dramatic disparities for the sake of building these bridges for evangelism. But at any cost is my thought. Surely not at the cost of equivocating over key theological issues. A bridge can be an effective tool of communication, but a bridge can often, like this, lead nowhere, and at the, it has a long drop at the other end. Good. What are the Islamic forms that align with the Scriptures, Mr. and Mrs. Travis? Well, at the root of I.M.'s premise is a missiology heavily influenced by Charles Craft. I like Charles Kraft. I've met him. I've sat under his teaching. I like him. And nobody agrees with everything you, your teachers say, okay? I, I realize that. Um, he's been really helpful in discussing worldview issues um, and a whole bunch of other ideas of communication of the gospel. I really like Charles Kraft. I sat 
in two classes under the teaching of his wife, Margaret. Marguerite, Meg. So I really appreciate what they've done in terms of uh, missions. But he's also taught something called form and meaning. And I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit in a few minutes. This is where I have a real problem on his concept of form and meaning and also his definition of culture. So this is where I'm going. Kraft traces his own understanding of, um, of form and meaning to the anthropologist Homer Benton, or sorry, Homer Barnett, who wrote a book called Innovation, the Basis for Cultural Change, if any of you are interested. It's an older book. It's a very dry read. Every religion has both form and meaning. Form is the outward phenomenon that we see, and meaning is the deep-level significance of the form. It's the why we do what we do. So form is the what, and the, the meaning is the why. Um, you find this in every religion, no doubt about it. So meaning is the deep-level significance ascribed to the form. Even Clifford Gertz, let's see. Oh, did I just pass him up? Yeah. There we go. Okay. That's Clifford Gertz. I stuck him in a Hertz rent-a-car. <laughs> Hertz, Gertz, you know what can I say? Okay. Uh, this, is, this is a good quote. I just use him to show you that even a secular anthropologist sees the, the, um, the idea that forms have meaning. This is a common understanding. Form has meaning. These forms are the practice of religion, the meanings behind the stories of, what we, of the stories that we tell, the stories behind the forms. So guided by the principle of form and meaning, Kraft has theorized, and this is, this is where he goes, this is the conclusion he comes to, that there is the possibility of contextualizing Christianity into Muslim Christian forms. The util, utilization of these cultural forms that align with Scripture lies at the heart of many I am people. There are at least three questions that I have in light of this premise. First, is Islam a culture, a religion, or a mixture of both? Oops. Did I pass that up too? Oh, shoot. And then you saw my really cool picture. Okay, so is Islam a, a religion, a mixture, a, a culture, a religion, or a mixture of both? In the same essay, the Travis's write this, quote, For Muslims, culture, politics, and religion are nearly inseparable, making changing religions a total break with society. The Travises believe Islam is a culture. Indeed, Muslims often tell me Islam is a complete way of life. You've heard the same thing, I know. Even Muslims seem to believe that Islam is more than a religion. It's their culture. How then do we handle this notion of Islam being a culture? So here's, uh, here's my great picture. Okay, you already saw it. Bummer. Missionaries have often in the past removed new believers. Extraction. Uh, the new convert is left, leaves his culture, and becomes a mini missionary becomes looks just like the missionary in terms of culture and this is this has historically been the case uh, the problem with it of course is it usually stops any notion of a contextualized presence of the gospel in that culture and so it it does have some problems on the other hand not extracting the new convert the pro I am proposal, which is, that's what I'm suggesting, especially the Travises are suggesting, keeps the new convert within his Islamic culture, allowing the Christian to be cloaked with Islam, thus allowing for a contextualized preaching, sharing, and ministering of the gospel by the, by the convert. Now, regardless of the picture, that's a tarantula covered with a ladybug suit, if you will. 
Most of us, when we think about either or, would prefer to keep Muslims in their own culture so that they don't suffer extraction, so that they don't suffer persecution, and so that there's a contextualized form of witness. We would just prefer that because it seems to make sense. It's, it, it feels right. The idea of, of ripping somebody out of their culture seems wrong. Um, I'm speaking for myself, but I, I, think, I, think, I think you would agree with me. Um, but we have to determine if Islam is too interwoven with culture to untangle. Most of us who know Islam agree. The religion has cultural elements knit into it. Islam does provide every Muslim, regardless of his or own, her, her own secular culture, a new culture. This culture is called the Sunnah, the Sunnah of Muhammad, and it's found in the, in the Hadith, of course. Now, I'm not going to explain the Sunnah a whole lot. I just want you to, to realize that Sunnah the way that Muhammad acted is the way Muslims are supposed to act. 1,400 years after, the, after Muhammad's death, Muslims are still coloring, well, if you're a man, well, some women, are coloring their beards red. That was a bad joke, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and they're doing things exactly like Muhammad did. That is the, that's the goal. Now, this, plays, this will play an important role in understanding form and function in just a few minutes. But here, the question is, okay, so Islam's culture is found in the Sunnah, so really, what it looks like I am arguing, it's impossible to separate the two. And you know what? I agree. It's impossible to separate as Islam. It's, you can't parse out, oh, this is religious and this is cultural. It is now such a morass, it cannot be picked apart. You can't say that, oh, that's cultural, that's not religious. It just doesn't work. But so what? <laughs> so what? Well, okay, George, stop it, will you? Of course, that's where we're going. What is the understanding of, of, uh, of Islamic forms? Have you ever be, uh, been into the mosque and watch a father instruct his child on how to do salat? The, the little boy at once, I remember, he had his elbows out when he should have had him in. And the father just kindly and lovingly nur you know, nudged him to do it right. Why? Because in Islam, if you do it wrong, it's null and void. Now, that's something that form and function doesn't speak to. In fact, I have to say, you know, not everybody agrees with Kraft's idea of form and function. Uh, Paul Hebert really disagreed. In fact, ended up saying, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit because it'll show up, I think, on the slide, that there are some times when form is the function. And in this case, because it, in Islam it can't be separated, why do Muslims pray five times a day? Because Muhammad told them to. And why did Muhammad, how did he discover that? By going up to the seventh heaven where he was instructed to do it. Why do they pray how they pray? Because that's what Muhammad did. You can't separate the two. Is there a proper Christian method of worship? Do we raise our hands? Do we jump up and down? Do we stand still? I believe the proper, of course, form is to stand still and don't move. But there are a lot of charismatics in here who like to jump up and down and scream and holler and shout. What's the difference? It's great. That's, that's the kingdom of God. So while a Muslim's worship may be voided if not performed according to the sunnah, there's no Christian sunnah. There's Jesus. The God of the Bible allows every culture to shape its own worship. 
However, this is not the case in Islam. In Islam, the form is the meaning. The meaning is the form. The two are inseparable. In the case of Islam, Kraft's principle mentioned earlier cannot be applied indiscriminately like you're slathering butter on a piece of bread. It just doesn't work. Rather, some missionaries have thought, well, we'll go in and we'll, we'll surgically remove the form from its meaning and we'll fill this Muslim form with a new Christian meaning. You can't do that in Islam because then it's no longer Islam. And if it's not Islam, I don't know what it is. It's certainly not Christianity. So what I'm arguing... Oh, uh, one more. i got another great quote here. This is, this is great. Muslim, Muslims themselves believe that the form is the function. The form is the meaning. Shazad Bashir states, The body is the fundamental ground on and through which a person constructs one's identity as a Muslim. So what you say? Well, this, this next part will get you. This is an Indonesian um, scholar whose name I will not attempt to pronounce out of respect for his name. He simply says, when performed with devotion and attention and accompanied by the tranquility of every member of the body, salah is a perfect declaration of faith. You do salat, you are saying shahada. It's essentially the same thing. That's what it means. It's a declaration of who you are. You cannot separate form from meaning. So what I'm saying is that Islam's forms and meanings are so innately linked that to perform salat is to be a Muslim. I don't care what you think it is. You are performing a Muslim ritual. So what do we do? Hang on. We'll just get past this. What do we do? Is there another perspective on culture that's possible? I, I think that there is. Crafts? Um, uh, understanding of culture utilizes the principle of form and meaning in light of another principle, the neutrality of culture. He says that there are some things in culture when they don't contradict the scripture are therefore neutral. So if you um, kill your daughter as an act of worship, well, that's not a neutral form. It's an evil form and it cannot be included in Christian worship. Um, However, if you are said, when you pray, if it's said, you must, when you pray, you must wear a, have a chicken on your head, that would be a neutral form because Scripture doesn't say you cannot do that. And so we would fill it with, with the meaning. We would allow it to stand as a cultural form of prayer in this culture. I guess in the, in the bar culture in Amsterdam or wherever this is. <clears throat> I have no idea. It's not me. I don't wear chickens on my head. (laughs) It's not me. (laughs) I eat my chickens. I don't wear them. So is Kraft's view of neutrals in culture the only view? Is there something else, somewhere else we can go? If not, then the premises held by many IMers has to stand. Sherwood Lingenfelter suggested an opposing, I think, more appropriate view of culture for Muslim ministries. According to Lingenfelter, culture has no neutral forms. Rather, it's a prison. Culture is a prison that forces us or leads us into disobedience. And it's, if you're in prison, what do you need to do? You need to get out. 
You need to escape. Since man is sinful, he creates sinful structures. These sinful structures include our culture. So therefore, the goal of discipleship is to lead a person, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Christian, it doesn't matter what culture you come from, out of that culture and letting Christ, if you will, redeeming that person and I'm going to even argue a little bit away from Lingenfelter, bringing lift and redemption to that culture. I believe cultures can be redeemed. I believe the gospel can do that. We've seen it in history. So the, the problem with Kraft's neutral forms is that Islam does not distinguish between form and meaning. Therefore, the assumptions about culture lead to real problems. The problems are mitigated, however, by accepting Lingenfelter's premise of a sinful man and sinful prison or sinful, uh, uh, sinful structure. This view of culture permits new converts to see Islam for what it is, a pit, a prison, a noose, a snare of the devil. Islam is a religion of death. It, it has chains. It's blind. It, it produces pride. It's a religion of chains, and, and let me explain what I mean. Because should one leave it, death is prescribed for the apostate. It's a religion of chains binding the practitioners to a creed that keeps them from experiencing intimacy with the Father. It's a, it's, a, it's a religion of blindness because it advocates unquestioning allegiance to a God one cannot know and to a prophet one cannot disobey. It's a religion of pride because it encourages adherents to do their very best so that they can hopefully be accepted on the Day of Judgment. Folks, is that what we want for our disciples? <laughs> That's what Islam is. So I suggest this. The new religion, the, the new methodology rather, that I would suggest is to understand that we need to lead new disciples out of their culture. Not extraction, I'm not talking about that. But under, helping them to understand, and Roger mentioned this, that's the worldview issue that what they have consistently believed and held as true is false. It's wrong. And there's a spiritual component to it. And we need to lead them out of that. Let the convert begin his pilgrimage away from the darkness of the prison, from the prison cell to the light of the kingdom of God. And it is a pilgrimage. We're all pilgrims out of our own cultures. There's not much good in the United States culture. I mean, what good is there is because of the, the Bible. But there's a lot of crud in our culture. And are we moving toward, towards it or away from it? So my conclusions then, just real simple, just a, a roundup here. I've examined two important theses of our uh, premises of the IM. The first suggested a nearly total dismissal of the church. This is my interpretation. If the premise is allowed to play out to its logical conclusion, the church plays little role in the life of a new follower of Jesus. It seems to me that those who propose this are really proposing a very individualistic style of Christianity. Boy, does that sound familiar? That sounds like American Christianity. It's God and me, not God and we. And I don't see that in Scripture. Why should we want to impose an essentially North American value on the rest of the world? Isn't this the type of colonialism that we all abhor? Why would we allow a Western ideal to replace the biblical understanding of community, of congregation, of fellowship and worship? The church's role is diminished in this premise and in the believer's life since he's not coming into the church, he's coming into the kingdom and there's no connection.
And then the second premise concerns the nature of Islamic forms and why these forms cannot be brought over into the new believer's walk with Christ. I posed Kraft's view of culture against Lingenfelter's view of culture to show that really Lingenfelter's view gives us a better understanding of what Islam is all about and how to disciple a Muslim. Ideas matter. They form behaviors and behaviors have consequences. The consequences of the I am are not a clearer understanding of the believer's identity in Christ, but an amalgam of church and mosque, Jesus and Isa, Moses and Muhammad. Such methodology cannot continue if we expect the church to be built and the kingdom to expand. So I'll take your questions, if any. Otherwise, we'll just go right to our discussion. Yeah.